Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Holtgrun. And it's a really, it's a pleasure to be back at the DIJ again. Uh, and I want to also thank uh, uh, the man, the director, who could not be here, unfortunately, but uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Franz Waldenberger, and also Torsten Weber, who's been my host this week and next week. Uh, and I'd particularly like to thank uh, Professor Koshiro for coming and offering her comments later after my presentation. Uh, well, as Dr. Uh, Holtgren just told you, uh, this talk is really part of a larger book project that I'm working on when, when home fronts became battlegrounds. It, it covers the three nations, as she explained, uh, Japan, Germany, and Britain. Uh, it's a comparative history, but it's more than a comparative history. It's also a transnational history in the sense that I'm really trying to connect <clears throat> the various home fronts, these three cases, uh, and, and also others in, this, in the course of the Second World War. Um, in the run-up to the Second World War, although we think of the planning and the, the home fronts as being very individual and very nation-centered, in fact, they were highly connected. And planners in each country leading up to the war uh, very much systematically were studying what both their friends and enemies were doing to prepare for what they saw the next war to be, which they called a total war. And it was, seemed very clear to them by the late 1930s that this upcoming Second World War uh, was going to be won or lost, not only on the battlefield, uh, but also on the home front. And so they worried about various common challenges of total war. Uh, how were they going to maintain civilian food supply in the face of blockades? How were they going to defend their cities uh, from the newest threat, that of aerial bombardment? And how were they going to sustain civilian morale in protracted wars? And above all, the strategists in all the countries sought to prevent a collapse of their own home fronts. Uh, this had happened most dramatically in 1918 at the end of the First World War in Germany, Austria-Hungary, in Russia, uh, where home fronts had collapsed, where shortages of food, uh, where uh, discontent with long wars, trench warfare, and others occasioned uh, food demonstrations, protests, uh, sailors and soldiers, mutinies, and governments giving up. And so the thought going into the Second World War was how to prevent that sort of thing from happening in your own country, uh, and maybe how to cause it to happen in the enemy's country. Uh, and so the, this, these are what I'm going to term in the course of the presentation today the transnational understandings of the home front during the Second World War. And I believe that these transnational understandings of the home front are really crucial uh, to trying to reassess why Japanese leaders decide to surrender in August 1945. So this brings me to really the heart of the talk tonight, uh, the cheesy title, five things you'd want to know in explaining Japan's decision to surrender. And I apologize for the cheesiness. Uh, when I told my daughters I was giving something called the five things you'd want to know, they were deeply embarrassed for me. Uh, and that's because those of you who are young people know that this is a cliche uh, for web stories. That's the five things you should know about this, the ten things you know about that. Well, why did I choose a cheesy title? Uh, because it occurred to me that a lot of people, including people with PhDs and who've been practicing diplomatic history and other things for years and years, really don't know a lot about the topic that they've written about for decades in trying to explain the end of the Second World War. So if it appears to be condescending, 
it's meant to be. Okay, so, uh, so what are the five things you'd want to know? Well, let's start with the most obvious, and as Dr. Holtgren said, the most timely. Uh, so we Americans hold this truth to be self-evident, uh, that our, 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 we're very proud of them, our two atomic bombs ended the war. And if you don't believe me, just ask the U.S. Post Office, because some of you might remember this, in 1994, uh, Getting ready for the 50th anniversary of the end of the war, the U.S. Post Office uh, commissioned uh, this stamp to be issued. Uh, atomic bombs hasten wars end August 1945. Uh, it's not a handsome mushroom cloud. It's actually not handsome, uh, nor is it a mushroom cloud. Uh, if some of you might have read the New York Times about a week ago, it's actually the mushroom cloud is much smaller. This is the smoke cloud taken three hours later when all of Hiroshima was burning. Uh, anyway, as some of you know, the stamp was never issued. Uh, Japanese government lodged a protest, said that they found it somewhat distasteful. Um, it was not commissioned. Had it been commissioned, you know, Americans would have been putting them on their Christmas cards. Uh, but it didn't happen, uh, and that's why this is a mock-up. This is just a model. It says zero, zero cents here because it wasn't issued. But zero, zero cents is about how much this is worth as a historical interpretation. Uh, because, in fact, uh, there were many things that helped settle the war. Now, Americans today, uh, including the lead-up to President Obama's visit last week, uh, they assume that the United States intended to drop two bombs, not one bomb, not three bombs, but two bombs, knowing that two bombs would end the war. But this was not the case. U.S. leaders and the military were prepared to actually drop several atomic bombs. Uh, and this was revealed by a colleague of mine at Princeton, Michael Gordon, really a fantastic book that hasn't gotten that much notice because I guess it's so heretical. Uh, he's a historian of science and technology. And he actually showed that it wasn't two bombs. Uh, some of you probably know this. A third bomb was all set to be dropped uh, about a week later, maybe around August 19th, uh, probably, says Gordon, on Tokyo. Uh, but it wasn't just three bombs uh, that, uh, from Los Alamos to Tinian Island, where they were flown from, uh, six bombs, six more bombs were in the process of being prepared. And uh, the US Army Air Force was fully prepared to drop six more, a total of nine in the fall of 1945, until the Japanese surrendered. Uh, U.S. leaders were actually a little surprised on August 15th when the Japanese government actually did announce that they would surrender uh, after only two lousy A-bombs. Uh, they expected it would take much more. Well, so we need to, again, decenter the atomic bombs, which is not to say that they're not horrific, they're very important, uh, but they were only one of several developments confronting Japanese leaders at the time that the surrender was announced. So that's number one. Uh, we move to number two. Uh, probably, I would say, even more important uh, than the atomic bombs was the Soviet entry into the war. And as I think most of you know, Soviets uh, had a neutrality pact with Japan during the course of the Second World War. They broke it uh, in August. August 8th, to be precise, uh, midnight, 
uh, when they entered the war and Soviet troops began overrunning Japanese positions in Manchuria. Uh, so this was between the dropping of the two atomic bombs, the Hiroshima bomb on August 6th, the Nagasaki bomb on August 9th. Uh, what we do know uh, is that Japanese leaders waited a full two days after the dropping of the Hiroshima bomb on August 6th. They did not even meet with, for two days. But within hours of the Soviet Union coming into the war, they furiously, the top six leaders plus other officials, began meeting and in the course of a 24-hour period uh, decided to accept the Potsdam Declaration, essentially ending the war. There were things to iron out the position of the emperor over the next several days, but basically the decisions were made August 9th and 10th among the small group of leaders. And from the records we have, uh, the leaders seem to be much more shocked by the Soviet entry uh, than the atomic bombs. And this was something that was argued uh, by um, Hasegawa Tsuyoshi, uh, actually a historian in America called Racing the Enemy. Uh, and also, I'm honored to say, uh, in a somewhat different way, as uh, Professor Koshiro will explain in her book, her recent book you just heard about, Imperial Eclipse, and that's her translation into Japanese on your right. Um, so both of these scholars, Professor Hasegawa, Professor Koshiro, in somewhat different ways talk about the importance of the Soviet factor. Uh, Professor Koshiro, I think as she'll explain to you, will say that Japanese strategists were not necessarily shocked or surprised, that they actually anticipated that the Soviets would enter the war against Japan. Uh, and so there is a disagreement between them. Uh, but uh, the way I see it, and she may correct me, but both Professor Koshiro and Professor Hasegawa tend to agree that whether the Japanese expected the Soviets to come into the war or not, the Soviet entry was the precipitant for the Japanese surrender. Now, why was the Soviet intervention so important? Well, several reasons. Uh, one is there was one group of elites uh, clustered around uh, Prince Konoya, the former prime minister, Yoshida Shigeru, uh, who eventually became the post-war prime minister for many years. Uh, this was the so-called peace party, very anti-communist. Uh, and for them, the Soviet Union coming into the war was their worst nightmare. They feared that once the Soviets came in, there would be a Bolshevization in Northeast Asia and the lands they occupied, and that they might move into Japan itself, perhaps be given Hokkaido to occupy, uh, and might also incite in the rest of Japan um, communist insurgencies against the post-war governments as well. So th that was one reason. Uh, other elites, the ones who were actually in government at the time, were remarkably more trusting of the Soviet Union these included Foreign Minister Togo, uh, the Emperor himself, uh, even the Army High Command. And I think this is Professor Koshido's argument to some extent. Um, the people in power in the summer of 1945, uh, by early June, they recognized the futility of continuing the war, uh, but they held out uh, knowing that they were in a very weak position, but they held out in the summer of 1945 because they very much looked to the Soviet Union to try and mediate a peace between Japan and the Anglo-American powers. Uh, and indeed, this hope of getting the Soviets to mediate a peace was so powerful that even on August 8th, this is two days after the dropping of the atomic bomb, even on August 8th, Foreign Minister Togo uh, was continuing to appeal uh, to his ambassador in the Soviet Union to try and get Stalin Molotov to mediate the peace. So uh, 
just hours later, the Soviet Union actually comes into the war. So to say the least, the Soviet entry into the war foreclosed the possibility that Japanese leaders had of a brokered conditional surrender. And then there was one more reason I think very important in the Soviet factor being so crucial. Uh, for army strategists themselves, the Soviet entry meant that Japan was now trapped in a two-front war, uh, which strategists understood they could not win. So a two-front war to the north, the Soviets to the south, the Americans and, and their allies. Uh, and this was very important, major part of Japanese strategy, at least as I see it, in the Second World War, had been that they had looked at the German uh, problem in the First World War when Germany had been surrounded and had fought a two-front or even more than two-front war, and it had been disastrous. Uh, so the Japanese took it as a hallmark of their strategy in the Second World War. They would not make that mistake, the German mistake. Uh, they would not um, get themselves into two-front war. So when the Soviets come in, it's very, very important in terms of really telling even Japanese army high command that there was no more hope strategically and tactically in hanging out in a war. Okay, so the Soviet factor is very important. Um, is this startlingly new? No. Uh, I mean, we know about the atomic bomb. We know about number one. Um, I think most historians also know about number two, how important the Soviet Union is. But what we don't talk about are the next three factors that are going to be the end of the talk tonight. Um, because these other three factors, three, four, and five, all concern the destruction of the Japanese home front. And there's a conventional wisdom out there that Japanese leaders did not care about their people. Uh, so they didn't really care what was happening on the home front. And even Professor Hasegawa, whose, whose book I deeply respect, but in an, uh, another essay, um, he talked about why, you can see up here, you can read it yourself, but the American planners assumed that you know, bombing uh, the Japanese home front would bring about a solution, but in red is the important part. Uh, this is a false assumption. Japanese leaders did not care about civilians. Um, they were willing to sacrifice them to preserve what they cherished most, the koktai, that is the emperor's position. Uh, and I think this is pretty much the conventional wisdom. So why look at anything regarding the home front? Because Japanese leaders didn't really care what was happening to their people. Well, um, I disagree with that statement, and that brings me now to the other three items. Uh, brings me to item three, uh, and item three is uh, the impact of another tactic from the First World War on total war, and that is the blockade, the blockade of food and fuel. This gets very little attention in historical understandings of Japan's position in the Second World War, um, but I'm arguing that it should be, uh, because little by little, the Allies, principally the Americans, but also the British, the Dutch, and others to some extent, um, were bottling up the food supply being imported to Japan in the course of the Second World War. So by 1945, um, in the South Pacific, Southeast Asia, even the area around Taiwan, uh, the Allies had pretty much stopped the shipment of food from Southeast Asia and Taiwan to Japan. Uh, for Taiwan, this is actually very important. It was not only rice, but it was sugar. Sugar is actually important. If you're eating horrible coarse grains from Manchuria, uh, you actually stop eating them because they don't taste very good if you have a little sugar. 
makes it go a little further. Uh, so sugar is actually extremely important, even though it sounds like a frivolous food to us. So the Allies had bottled up the food supply coming uh, from Southeast Asia and the southern regions. Uh, and then in the spring of 1945, they moved to the next step, uh, which was the aerial mining of various choke points in the Japanese mainland itself. Uh, they dropped these huge aerial mines. Some of them are 1,000 pounds, some are 2,000 pounds. They dropped them in the Straits of Shimonoseki up and down the west coast of Japan. Uh, it was the American operation was called Operation Starvation. Okay, so it had a very clear intent. Uh, you don't see uh, Korea and China here, but at this point, the only food the Japanese could depend on from outside of Japan was coming from Manchuria and Korea. Uh, and with Operation Starvation and the aerial mining campaign, um, the B-29s, the same ones that dropped the firebombs, the atomic bombs, were also dropping these aerial mines. During about the same period of firebombing, from March 1945 to the end of the war, by the end of July 1945, the aerial mining campaign had pretty much stopped almost all shipping coming from Northeast Asia, from Korea and Manchuria, to the mainland of Japan. Now, this was devastating for Japanese food consumption because before the war, Japan had been depending on uh, offshore, in other words, overseas delivery of food, to the extent that it was about 20% of their caloric consumption. So by the end of July 1945, the Allies had pretty much cut this, uh, this down to zero, so that 20% food supply source was basically lost in the course of the war, but particularly in the last months of the war. Uh, it was so bad that by July of 1945, major Japanese industrialists were complaining to the military and to the government that their workers were simply too hungry to work, that workers were um, being absentee from their jobs, going to the countryside with their families. Uh, even if they stayed on the job, they really weren't capable of producing much at all. And after the war, the U.S. Strategic Bombing Survey estimated that if the war had continued one more year, and this is just an estimate, they speculated that as much as seven million Japanese might have starved to death or at least were suffering from acute malnutrition. And the malnutrition was already very much in evidence by the summer of 1945. So that's reason number three. Food was really disappearing. And, uh, you know, Japanese wartime leaders talked about spiritual mobilization, and they talked about Bushido, and they talked about all these things. Uh, but you can only get so far spiritually when you're starving to death. And this was, so there is a physical constraint, and this was being understood, and we'll come back to this later. Okay, that's reason number three. Reason number four, well, it's the fire bombings themselves. Um, I don't know if this is startlingly new, um, although it hasn't been, I think, analyzed very uh, rigorously in terms of its impact on Japanese leadership. As I think most of you know, um, the bombings of Japanese cities started really only at the end of the war. There were the Doolittle Raids in 1942. They were fairly inconsequential. Um, there were attempts to bomb from November 1944. Again, not very consequential. Uh, but in March 1945, there commenced new campaign using the huge B-29 super fortresses. Uh, and... 
for reasons that are very interesting historically, although not easy to explain, the, the very first, or at least one of the first raids, that was part of what's called area bombing, in other words, the simply dropping bombs in the center of a city and just hoping they hit lots of things. Um, this occurred, as I think most of you know, March 9th and 10th, the evening, uh, 1945. It was targeted on Tokyo, and it was, from the American perspective, spectacularly successful, from the Japanese perspective, spectacularly devastating. Um, probably the greatest single loss of life in an air raid, at least at the moment, of uh, the Hiroshima bomb uh, taking its toll somewhat uh, rising above, but 100,000 people, as I think most of you know, being killed in one night uh, in a five-hour period uh, in Tokyo in March 1945. And after that, an increasing uh, level of area bombing of the other major Japanese cities. Uh, and then, um, and just to give you some sense, uh, I mean, we have to understand the devastation in Tokyo uh, was extremely intense. I mean, this was taken by a police photographer at the time. Um, going back to our stamp, the, you know, the ill-fated uh, Hiroshima commemoration stamp with, you know, the fake mushroom cloud, but it wasn't a fake cloud at all, but it was, as I said, it was a fireball cloud. Uh, Tokyo was bombed at night, so you couldn't have seen quite the same cloud, except that the B-29 bombers talked about smoke and heat going up to 20,000 feet. So what was happening in Tokyo, at least as a result of the fire, um, was in some ways as intense as in Hiroshima. Now, I'm not talking about the radioactivity and other things like that, but these are two comparable raids in terms of the effect of fire, the incineration effect. Uh, well, um, most historians don't tend to take the firebombing very seriously as a factor that ends the war uh, for the very simple reason. They argue, well, the war went on. The March raid occurred, and the Japanese leadership hung on. They didn't surrender. So therefore, they argue, the firebombings couldn't have been that consequential since there wasn't an immediate surrender. But I think what we have to understand is that the firebombs had a steadily worsening effect. It's a cumulative effect. And I think more and more, I would argue, uh, that it does have a huge impact the more it goes on. Uh, it has an impact on all sorts of things. Uh, one of them is food. Uh, a lot of food distribution is disrupted by the bombing. I mean, this is a, a one of the, another one of the major raids on Tokyo, that, because the raids on Tokyo went on and on. But this was one that happened to hit a government granary. And of course, many of these attacks, because they incinerate whole areas, uh, incinerate lots of stockpiling of Japanese food. This was a rice granary. You can see people are scavenging here. They're desperate, they're desperately hungry, trying to get burnt sacks of rice. Uh, so it has an effect on steadily ratcheting up the destruction of the Japanese food supply. Uh, it also has another effect, and that is de-urbanization. Uh, one of the intentions of the U.S. bombing campaign, the British campaign over Germany before that, uh, was to drive people out of the cities, to drive workers out of the factories. So it creates, the firebombing creates a tremendous refugee effect which doesn't get a lot of attention in, in Japan. We talk about the evacuation of children, but that's a child's play, one could say, in this story, because that's just a few hundred thousand, but all told, about eight and a half million, eight and a half million Japanese 
flee the cities, mainly in the last five months of the war. So this, I mean, this is the common scene, people leaving with carts, people leaving on trains, extra trains are being, it's, it's so intense that Japanese leaders, it's very interesting, you know, we only focus on what they think about the emperor, but they talk a lot about how transportation system is paralyzed. And you say, ah, transportation system, who cares about that? But it's actually very important because they're stunned that life is not moving anymore because so many people are moving out of the cities and they're climbing over trains and they're clogging up the roads. And it's very hard, these leaders complain, to bring anything into the big cities. You're trying to bring materials in. You're trying to bring food in. Transportation is really snarled. And then there's the effect of refugees in your own country, which has an impact on Japanese as it does on leaders in other countries where they're refugees. I mean, France in 1940, you see similarly, leaders very, very upset about the impact of millions of refugees in their own countries. Um, there is the demoralization effect. Um, many of the people who are leaving are people who were working in war industries. Uh, they're not supposed to leave. Sometimes their factories are burnt, but sometimes their factories are not burnt, but they don't want to stick around until they are burnt. Uh, so they're fleeing with their families. And this is interesting because one of the things that was feared in the Second World War by all sides was that bombing was going to make workers so angry with their governments, as we'd seen in 1918 in Berlin and other places, that they would rise up in revolution and overthrow their leaders. Well, that doesn't happen in the Second World War. It certainly doesn't happen in Japan. But the demoralization occurs in another way. Workers don't revolt. They get scared, and they run away. And when they run away, it's devastating in terms of total war, which is really based on production within the cities. Uh, well, having destroyed the big cities, the U.S. Army Air Force General, uh, the famous, infamous Curtis LeMay, uh, moved on to in the course of the summer months, so June, July, and early August, he moved on from bombing six major cities to bombing an additional 57 to 58 small and medium cities all around Japan. Now, we seldom talk about this, but this too seems to have had a devastating impact on Japanese leaders and a devastating impact on Japanese civilian morale because lots of people from the big cities who had run away to smaller provincial cities found that those cities, in turn, were destroyed. So this is, for example, Aomori, you know, way up north. Lots of people had gone up and fled to it, but 100 B-29s, 100 B-29s come to little Aomori and devastate its central area, which is a lot of Aomori itself. Um, moreover, uh, in the summer months, so this is, again, just we're talking about the weeks leading up to the August surrender, what's happening. Um, not only were the small and medium cities being bombed, uh, but the U.S. was using an interesting form of psychological warfare, something developed um, over the skies of Germany uh, in the other theater, and that was to drop propaganda leaflets, uh, which were basically, I mean, if we were today and we weren't patriotic Americans, we'd call this state-sponsored terrorism, <laughs> uh, because the effect is to terrorize Japanese people. So those of you who read Japanese, uh, you know, it's basically <laughs> you're next, okay? Your city's next. Uh, so they had dropped them over these provincial cities, uh, and they dropped them a few days before. 
Uh, and so, I mean, it had a terrifying effect. It was meant to have a terrifying effect. Uh, the Americans sort of comforted themselves that the, this is humane because they were warning people before they were going to kill them. Uh, but they weren't doing it to be nice and humane. They were doing it to drive them out of the cities, again, to create more refugees, to snarl up the roads, and basically to get people out of the cities that produced for war. Uh, but the Americans did more than that. They also did what I guess you could call Russian roulette. Um, this is from the New York Times. Um, what you see in the, the photograph there, it's a photograph of one of the famous Japan, uh, leaflets dropped over Japanese cities. Um, you can see the headlines here, B-29 chief, that's Curtis LeMay, names 11 cities to be wiped out. Okay, that's pretty explicit. Okay, not, not the most humane wording. Um, but what, uh, you can't see it very well, but what the photograph shows of the leaflet that, that was dropped on all these 11 cities is it's got Aomori, it's got other Japanese cities, and it says, um, this is a translation, too many words here, but basically um, the point is uh, that um, you drop them on 11 cities, and then you see here's the punchline. Uh, you're going to, the U.S. promises to bomb four of them. Well, we're not going to tell you which ones, okay? So, um, so we, at the bottom, we cannot promise only these cities will be among those attacked, uh, but at least four will be. So um, <laughs> this is a warning. Get out of town, okay? Evacuate. Um, and did the Japanese take it seriously? Oh, yeah. <laughs> People left these provincial cities en masse, and I can't believe how many documents I've found from the Army General Staff, from the Kempeitai, the military police, talking about how upset they are by this because they know they can't control the situation anymore. They can, tell, they can tell Japanese people to turn in the leaflets, but the Americans are dropping tens of thousands of these. and People are taking them seriously for good reason because it's, it's actually happening. They are actually seeing their cities destroyed and other cities destroyed. Uh, so this, too, is being remarked upon by the leadership and by the military. Okay, so that's... Um, a lot of things then are ratcheting up. The bombing is getting more and more intense, and it's being noticed. Brings me to number five, which I guess is opportune since I'm speaking here at the German Institute. <laughs> um, and that is uh, the effect of Japanese leaders and other officials watching what had happened um, at more or less the same time it, to Germany. And taking very seriously what happened to Germany as an object lesson for what might very soon happen to Japan. So we do something very strange when we study the history of World War II. It's called a world war, but nobody who studies Japan takes it seriously because there's no, like, world. Um, they only look at what's happening in Japan and the Pacific theater, but in fact, the European and the Pacific theaters were very much connected particularly for the Japanese. They see what's happening. Um, now, how do they see what's happening? Uh, well, uh, we somehow think that the Japanese were confined to their island during the, first, the Second World War, or maybe just to the Pacific, but they actually have a lot of information coming in in real time from the fighting in Europe. How do they have that? They have diplomats, military attaches, obviously in Berlin, um, but also in a lot of what you could call neutral country listening posts, very close to Germany, Switzerland, 
Sweden. Uh, we have Lisbon. We have Madrid. Uh, we have Ankara, Turkey on the other side. We've got lots of reports coming in. And what the ones, particularly the ones that in, are in the middle of Europe, are describing is they're describing the devastation of German cities by Allied bombing. Uh, the incredible death and destruction caused by the invasion of Western allies uh, from on, on the Western Front and then Soviets on the Eastern Front closing in on Germany. They're also describing the desperate measures that National Socialist Germany is taking in the last months of the war. Uh, so the reports are coming back talking about the Volkssturm. Uh, this is the sort of the famous conscription of all German males from the age of 16 to 60. Uh, they're being pressed into fighting. Uh, old men, young boys, uh, uh, women drink, uh, digging trenches on the, in the Eastern Front against Soviet tanks. Uh, they're talking about this full mobilization. Um, and they're not talking about it in highly complimentary ways. They're talking about it as, as horrific. Uh, they are talking about the utter destruction of Germany itself as the invading armies come in from both sides and as the aerial uh, bombardment intensifies. And these ambassadors and attaches are telling Tokyo the consequences of the Nazi decision to fight to the finish because that was Hitler's decision and that's what the National Socialists did. These reports from the Japanese officials in Europe are telling um, Japanese leaders back home that Germany is being destroyed in a way that they say might take 100 years for Germany to recover. I mean, this is the figure they're using, or decades and decades. They're talking about how Germany as a nation has ceased to exist, occupied by its enemies, without its own government, but split up into four sections. Uh, and the diplomats are also reporting to Tokyo what they're being told, particularly in Switzerland, neutral Switzerland. They're being told by German bankers, Swiss bankers, and others. They're told, being told that the Japanese, whatever their faults, are no Nazis. Uh, that the Japanese leaders should be, unlike Hitler, capable of stopping the war before the war totally destroys Japan as a nation. Well, I'm running a little low on time, uh, but I uh, just want to give you like three slides of, to give you examples of some of the reports that are coming in from Japanese diplomats from Europe. Um, but this is a conversation between Japanese banker and the vice president of the Reichsbank uh, in Switzerland, but he's saying Japan must on no account trod in the footsteps of Nazi Germany, and he's talking about the fight to the finish. Ambassador Sato, the Japanese ambassador in Moscow, uh, talking about aerial bombardment, its devastation of Germany, and how Japan is being faced with the same situation. Um, and, and again, a warning that Japan has to get out of the war. Uh, this long report uh, from the Japanese uh, secretary um, in the Berlin embassy, uh, but talking about how effective aerial bombardment has been in bringing about the German defeat, and talking about how he's retreating from Berlin, going through Munich. Munich is no more. How much more pitiful the state of the Ruhr and Rhine areas. Uh, and then the, the really the punchline that 
the efforts of Nazi officials under Hitler, continuing this hopeless war to implant in the hearts of the people the spirit of fighting to the death, uh, have proved entirely misguided, and then each additional day's fighting will delay by 10 years Germany's ability to rise again. Again, lessons to uh, Japanese leadership. And finally, Ambassador Kase um, in Switzerland uh, talking about if the Japanese do decide to fight to the finish, if they wish to make, I like the phrase, a second Iwo Jima in the homeland by fighting on to the bitter end, we should be doing nothing more than following the path which Germany has taken. And then he says, in some ways, if this happens, the Japanese are even more prone to fight to the finish. I'm not quite sure how they could be more prone than the Germans were in this case, but they could be more prone, and then there's a possible danger our people may be exterminated. Well, these are the sort of reports that are coming in by the summer, by early June of 1945. These reports are making a big impact. Most leaders in Japan, military included, realize that they have to get out of the war, that there's no way they can win this war, but they, they then spend the summer trying to figure out how to get out with some honor, how to get out with some concessions. The concessions they want dwindle and dwindle. Maybe they can keep Manchuria, maybe they can keep Korea, maybe they cannot be occupied, maybe they won't be tried as war crimes. Every, every day that passes, their hand gets weaker and weaker. Now, um, some of you are probably thinking toward the end here, well, wasn't the Japanese military going to fight to the death? Wasn't every Japanese going to take their bamboo spear and rush the American soldiers on the beach? No. I mean, these are propaganda pictures. Uh, the bamboo spears thing was an isolated thing. The real point is that Japanese leaders never really emulated the Germans and never really organized this Volkssturm. Now, it's true that in March 1945, they announced that they're going to create a volunteer corps. The, it's called, the, um, in English, the Volunteer Corps, or in Japanese, the Kokumin Giyutai. They draft males, 12 to 65. They draft females, 12 to 45. Uh, but this is not a Volkssturm. Uh, this is for defense work. This is for unarmed defense work. These are not people who are they're meant to create fire breaks, to clear the rubble, rubble from aerial bombardment, to do firefighting, but they are not created to fight the Americans on the beach. Now, in April 1945, government does sort of feebly announce they're going to create a combat volunteer fighting corps, the Kokumin Giyu Sento Tai, um, but they sort of take their time in organizing it. And in April 1945, you're serious about it. You shouldn't be taking your time. Uh, it's not even used in Okinawa, the big fighting, where there is actually an invasion of a part of Japan. Uh, and um, by the end of the war, although 28 million Japanese males and females uh, would have been eligible for this combat corps, only about 2 million were organized, and most of them were never used. Well, let me bring this to a halt now. Um, so what's going on with Japanese leaders right at the end, August 9th and 10th? You know, after the atomic bombs, after the Soviet intervention, they're meeting in the imperial bunker. It's very interesting. You know, we don't have accurate transcripts of what's going on, so there's still a lot of interpretation. But very interesting statement by Hinanuma, who was president of the Privy Council. And if you know some pre-war Japanese history, this was not exactly Mr. Liberal, one of the most conservative of Japanese elites. Uh, but he is confronting the army uh, minister and the chief of the army general staff with basically a lot of the things I've been talking about tonight. 
He says to these two army people, you claim to uh, you can still pursue the war, but I have doubts because air raids will go on every day and every night. And, and then I like the sentence. Are you confident in our defense against atomic bombs? Well, if you're an American, this is a question you shouldn't even be asking. Atomic bombs, everybody <laughs> surrendered, right? No, he's saying, are you confident? Maybe you could, can you do anything against atomic bombs? Um, and also, please explain to us how to deal with the paralysis of public transportation. That's there again. It's interesting, the Army General Staff feebly responds, well, though we haven't made sufficient progress so far in dealing with air raids, and it's including the atomic bombs, uh, we should uh, expect better results soon uh, since we revised our tactics. It sounds kind of like a corporate <laughs> annual report. Um, okay, and then Hironuma says to Prime Minister Suzuki, um, okay, what do you plan to do about domestic order? What's your position on food situations getting really bad? Uh, and we should also think about domestic disturbances that will get worse and worse, not by ending the war, but by continuing the war. So this idea that you could have actual insurrection, and the prime minister says he agrees. Well, we lack the transcripts of what's actually going on minute by minute in this Supreme War Council, these top leaders. But if we were flies on the wall in this imperial bunker on August 9th and 10th, we would have heard Japan's top leaders bemoaning how everything around them in the famous words of the Japanese emperor, was developing not necessarily to Japan's advantage. There were atomic bombs, there were fire bombs, there was Soviet intervention, there was a prospect of imminent starvation, and the very real possibility of a horrific invasion, as it was the case in Germany. So we'll never know precisely which factor was most decisive, because frankly, the Japanese leaders themselves could not have differentiated. So many bad things were happening at once. But one thing is for sure. In the end, Japanese leaders did surrender. And without an invasion of their homeland, indeed, whatever you can say about them, they were no Nazis. Okay, thank you. So thank you very much, Professor Garrow. I'm sorry, <laughs> slipped my mind. Uh, very interesting, uh, the, the presentation. And to me, these five things that you may want to know or you should know opened Pandora's box, sort of, because yeah, these are the things that Japanese people do not necessarily enjoy remembering or even thinking about. Um, I am going to discuss the, uh, the, the, these five points raised by uh, Shell, uh, point by point, and in the end, I may end up defending my own work, Imperial Eclipse, so uh, my apology for doing that in advance. Um, do you have the handout that I prepared? Uh, the, 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 it's, uh, the, the, that shows how different Japanese high school history textbooks uh, published last year um, narrate the end of Japan's war. Well, there were a total of 15, no, uh, no, yeah, 15 history textbooks published uh, the nationwide, but only one textbook that I omitted, even that the other checking, is the one uh, edited by Sakurai Yoshiko, the highly right-wing uh, controversial uh, textbook. So I eliminated that, but the remaining 14 Remaining 14 that I checked uh, all the sections that discussed the, uh, the, the words and 
and how the other situations were and how and why that the Japan surrendered. And as you can see, um, all these, not all these, four points that the, the, the shell uh, mentioned, except for one, are listed in every high school textbook. But these are all mentioned as the background of Japan's surrender, not the uh, factors directly leading to Japan's surrender. And I'm going to explain why it is so. Well, as for the atomic bombs and the Soviet entry into the war, all books explain them as a twin shock that led the Japanese government to surrender. And uh, these textbooks do not um, discuss which weighed heavier or not. It's both the atomic bomb and the Soviet Union. Uh, entry into the war, and that's the uh, kind of a standard interpretation in Japan these days. And uh, the students, Japanese students that I teach, uh, they come to uh, university uh, with that kind of interpretation. And also the other Yalta and Potsdam and so-called famous Mokusatsu, and then the other Soviet Japan Neutrality Pact, and then the other diplomacy against the Soviet Union. All these things are included in old textbooks. It, these are must knowledge for Japanese high school students. As for air raid, uh, it's also a must knowledge. Uh, for the other high school kids. All textbooks print statistics of casualties and maps of target cities and images, particularly images of Tokyo after the fire bombings. And also five out of these 14 history textbooks mention about the Chongqing uh, bomb in 1939. Um, German surrender, it's also a must item that every textbook discusses. And standard narratives are Nihon wa kore de kanzen ni koritsu shita, matawa Nihon wa and as the handout shows, uh, images of the Soviet Red Army capturing Berlin and a firebombing of Dresden, uh, the other, these things also appear in some of the textbooks. And uh, some textbooks also make reference to the uh, peace operations uh, via Moscow as well, although that the other nun talks about the other peace feeler in peace fillers in neutrality uh, the other nations. And finally, the controversial one, blockade, operation starvation. None of the textbooks mention about that. And only one textbook indirectly uh, the other refers to that event, but it doesn't go into detail. And I'm going to explain why it is so, although that's my assumption and uh, the, uh, the other, you have the full right to disagree. Okay, so let's examine Shell's thesis point by point, but let me skip A-bomb versus Soviet entry into the war. Uh, the other first. I'll get to that point at the end of this talk. Uh, first, fire bombing as a factor leading to Japan's surrender. Um, the question here is how to contextualize fire bombing in the last phase of Japan's war. Uh, the U.S. Strategic Bombing Survey of 1946 um, argues that the strategic bombing di decisively contributed toward uh, Allied decisive victory. And then, the, uh, the, as the reports say, that uh, surviving Japanese leaders also agree with that. Of course, if you interview Japanese leaders right after surrender, they say, yes, 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 yes. Uh, they didn't have the... Uh, 
legal right to say to disagree with Americans. But anyway, the, the, the Japanese say, according to the uh, uh, strategic bombing survey, uh, the air bomb uh, was a decisive reason behind the, the Japan's surrender. However, such positive assessment um, as many uh, diplomatic historians uh, in the United States and Japan argue, was merely an afterthought because the other wartime analysis supporting the bombing policy was casual and uh, wartime doctrine and practice were based on little evidence, no precedent, so that no one knew what was going to happen if the, the, the massive air raid happened. And no one, including Curtis Lumet himself, was sure whether massive destruction would lead to victory against Japan. So in other words, uh, this is the, the Robert Jarvis at Columbia actually said. Um, the U.S. resorted to indiscriminate bombing because that was what their weapons could do best. So the, 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 there was no political consideration involving in that. Uh, but Japanese textbooks are not that openly accusatory toward the, uh, the, the bombing uh, by the, uh, the, the United States. But Japanese history textbooks focus uh, on Musabetsu Kogeki, indiscriminate bombing, and Sento Yoin and Shimin, killing of non-combatants and civilians in explaining the nature of the firebombing campaign, uh, not the, uh, the, 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 what the firebombing brought to Japan's war, but how the bombing uh, the happened. So the, the Japanese history textbook actually focused on the nature of these attacks. And I personally uh, like that. I mean, you know, the, the Japanese history textbooks, so many of you think that it's kind of the, the evil, right? But some of the things that I can agree. And uh, the, the way that the, uh, the history textbooks portray the, the strategic bombing um, the strategic bombing actually uh, the, the changed throughout the, the World War II, and originally the, the bombing took place as a way to destroy enemies' ability to wage war. So first the target was the, the factories uh, the, that produced the, the military weapons and stuff like that to, uh, to uh, damage the uh, enemy's infrastructure. But as the war continued on, by 1940, deliberate terror raid uh, by British actually began against the other Germans, and then after 1942, British army uh, the, the began to attack the uh, German civilian population uh, the, the openly. And only two days after Pearl Harbor, um, the, the uh, a key U.S. Army planner actually said that perhaps the best way to offset this initial defeat you know, at the other Pearl Harbor is to burn. Tokyo and Osaka. In October 1943, uh, the, 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 here is what the, the, the U.S. Uh, the, the officials said, that the most important thing is to kill German workers. So World War II was the origins of the dangerous illusion that the bombing of cities and the civilians would bring out the, uh, the, uh, the, the desirable outcome. And uh, this illusion as we know, later sanctioned the growth of nuclear 
arsenals, and there's a doctrine of nuclear deterrence. So uh, the, uh, the, the Japanese history textbook, by focusing on the, uh, the, the inhuman natures of the, uh, the, the bombing, actually uh, the, the, you know, include the, the important lesson uh, of the, uh, the, the sequence of you know, what happened to the, uh, the indiscriminate uh, aerial bombing against the, the civilians. It later escalated to the, uh, the image of the nuclear uh, holocaust in the Cold War. So because of that, uh, maybe the, the Japanese uh, the, the history textbooks you know, made a kind of a compromise, not saying that the, the fire bombing actually did actually contribute to the, the world's end. Because many, to many Japanese people, the end of the, the war means the beginning of the, the peace. But you know, if you look at that aspect of the, the fire bombing, you know, killing the, the civilians and uh, as the kind of a ways to bring in the, the peace shouldn't be a kind of a logical, convincing narrative about the, the peace. So I think that's personally the reason that the, the Japanese history textbook didn't talk about the, the fire bombing as the beginning of the, the peace, but possibly the reverse. And as for the um, destruction of the major industrial capacities by the, the air bombing, uh, Japanese economists and uh, scholars usually don't adopt that interpretation because it's hard to say that only the strategic bombing alone paralyzed and destroyed Japan's economic and industrial infrastructure. As we all know, Japan's economy was already doomed as soon as the, the Sino-Japanese War began in 1937. So by the time that the, the U.S. Uh, the, um, uh, aerial bombing began, the uh, Japanese economy was already dying. So the, the Japan's doomed wartime economy began in 1937, not late 1944. The U.S. strategic bombing survey probably focused primarily on the period only when the firebombing occurred, not the entire uh, the period of Japan's war. So when examining the cause of ultimate collapse in the system of wartime economy, Japan scholars, particularly economists, tend to cover the longer period starting 1937 and investigate Japan's failed mobilization for total war even before Pearl Harbor. So U.S. fire bombing indeed destroyed already collapsing system of wartime economy, but it's like saying... A patient with terminal cancer gets killed in a car accident. Well, very bad analogy, but uh, you know, the best way to think about it is that cancer patient being killed in a car accident. So what killed that person, car accident or cancer? Now, blockade, operation starvation as a factor leading to Japan's surrender or not. Strategic bombing survey assessed that this mining campaign had directly led to the defeat of Japan, and then it is also said that members of the Japanese army uh, agreed. However, none of the textbooks, as I said, mention about this blockade, and I also do, uh, did uh, Google Yahoo search, uh, and, but Japan's research engine's result hardly shows any substantial studies on that episode. And I began thinking about it, why it is so. Well, the aftermath of Operation Starvation is quite a dark episode in post-war Japan's history and seems to remain as a taboo of a sort even today. So let me explain uh, how. 
After the Pacific War was over, approximately 6,600 explosive naval mines, mines remained in vital water routes and ports of Japan, and U.S. Navy uh, tried to clean uh, the, uh, the, the, these uh, the harbors in the Sea of Japan, but it was impossible to retrieve and uh, deactivate all of them. So from August 1945 to May 1949, um, one Japanese cargo ship and uh, two Japanese passenger boats were sunk by U.S. contact mines, killing a total of 1,217 people. And by the end of the occupation of Japan was over, a total of 15 Japanese minesweepers were sunk with 78 crew members killed and more than 200 wounded. wounded. By 1952, newly formed Japan's coastal or maritime safety force, Kaijo Hoancho, uh, had deployed 360 minesweepers and 19,000 men to clear waterways for safe, uh, safe shipping. So thus, post-war Japan's maritime safety force became quite skilled in minesweeping and the U.S. government or military or U.S. occupation government, whenever, paid attention to Japan's developing, Japan developing advanced technology for detecting different kinds of mine. Japan, by that time, already became an expert uh, in that field. So for that, the U.S., under the new policy for Japan-U.S. Defense Corporation, asked the Japanese government to engage in mine removal Mine, I'm sorry, mine removal operation in the Korean War because the other North Korea had planted the thousands of mines across the coast of the Korean Peninsula. And the Japanese government, just three years after the enactment of the Japanese constitution with that beautiful constitution, uh, Article 9, agreed to participate in the other Korean War. And then the other day began the other mine sweeping, and then the other brought in a brilliant success. And then the other South Korea actually the other sanctioned for Japan for that cooperation. This is the episode that maybe Japanese history textbooks don't want to discuss. I don't know, that's my speculation. So the, the, the Operation Starvation seems to include something that the, the, the Japan or Japanese people don't want to talk about, particularly about how the, the Japan actually began military uh, involvement after the war. Now, German surrender as a factor leading to Japan's surrender, uh, as I said, uh, this is also a must episode uh, included in every history textbook. But, um, um, the collaboration between Japan and the Japan has, may have been exaggerated. After the Battle of Midway in June 1942, because the other Germany was too busy uh, the fighting against the other Soviet Union, uh, even though that the other Japanese ambassador to uh, Germany, Ambassador Oshima, repeatedly requested the uh, German Foreign Minister Ribbentrop to please help Japan with the various equipments and the technology and the personnel, uh, Ribbentrop. Rippentrop actually declined, saying that the, uh, the, the Germans were too busy fighting the, uh, the, the Soviet Union. So this envisioned German-Japanese economic relations were never able to grow beyond mostly propaganda status. 
And then the mutual distrust also existed. Um, the, the Hitler said in March 1943 that Japanese lie right to your face, and they also exaggerate the, uh, the, the, their victory. And then the, the Suzuki Kantaro, prime minister, also said shortly after the, the German surrender that the, uh, the, 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 Japan's, uh, the, the goal of Japan's war is to build a new Asia. Therefore, development in the European war theater will not affect such Japanese, uh, will not affect such Japanese conviction and ambition. So the, uh, the other, we have to think more, uh, more deeply about the other nature, how, how much that the, other Jap uh, the German surrender actually affected the, uh, the other Japanese will to continue to fight. So uh, the other, all these things combined, and then the other, let me summarize my comments in one minute. Uh, meaning of home front and a strategic bombing in thinking about the end of Japan's war. It's interesting that the, uh, the other three points that Shell mentioned, uh, atomic bomb and a fire bombing and a blockade, all aim at the uh, civilian population. And you can say that killing tens of thousands of men and women were the legitimate military necessity. However, um, can we, uh, can, I'll, I'll be comfortable saying that the uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the U.S. Uh, military actions like these were one of the other greatest m moment in military history uh, that brought peace to the world. In other words, uh, the other we could say that it, uh, if these are the reasons for Japan's surrender, Japan surrendered to U.S.'s technological dystopianism rather than the, the U.S. democracy. Uh, remember that even the U.S. Strategic Bombing Service report noted the, uh, noted the belief that high casualty would not be accepted by the U.S. democracy. So the, uh, the, uh, the, the, these are the issues that the, uh, the, we may uh, want to uh, think about before accepting that these were actually the factors for Japan's surrender. So these are the comments. Thank you very much.